on my part. There we go. Okay, Ephesians 5. Turn to Ephesians 5, please. And uh, in one way, apologize for, uh, for the mic. And I know I preach to teens. And with teens, you got to stand your head. you got to roll over. you got to jump up and down. you got to get loud. you got to get quiet and all that. And I do sometimes. I, I'm thinking of the message, and I get a little too quiet. And understand, many couldn't hear this morning. So I said, he said, well, let's try this. Okay, so we have this. Ephesians 5, 25. It's a passage you all know extremely well. By the way, how many of you are pastors? Again, raise your hand. Real high pastors. Let me see your hands, okay? Very good. Thank you. And this is a pastor's conference. And who understands the church better than pastors? And who, therefore, had the opportunity, yea, and also the privilege to exemplify the greatest picture of the church that God has given us, which is marriage? Husbands, love your wives. What is the greatest thing you can do for your kids? Husbands, love your wives. How can you encourage your teens? Love their moms. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ loved the church, gave himself forth that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water of the word, he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. I love that phrase, not spot or wrinkle, because I always wondered if we're going to be old or young in heaven. But it says no wrinkles. We're going to be young, and that could be great. So therefore, husbands, love your wife. Why do we struggle with this so? We pretend always it's fine. But honestly, our poor wives in ministry... And we're so glad that they support us and pray for us. But sometimes they do feel like second fiddle. If nothing else, just a time factor, okay? Husbands love your wives. You know why some struggle with this? Because I don't think they totally understand what love is all about. Really. I mean, some people define love by hairlines. Did you know that? Yeah, if you're bald in the front, you're a thinker. If you're bald in the back, you're a lover. If you're bald all over, you think you're a lover. <laughs> Teens in a high school where my kids went, they actually asked the question, what is love? Here's some of their answers. Body tingling, you feel it all over. Rainbows and stars, feeling good. Electricity over your whole body makes you forget problems. White light. The last one is the most honest. I don't know. And our kids are growing up in a world where they don't understand what love is all about. Many teens to me, they are totally afraid of adulthood. They don't want to be grown-ups. They, they don't see a lot of joy in the marriages and their own parents. Why would they want to leave their world and go to that world? And, and there's two ways that some people look at relationships. The world has its fantasy formula for relationships, and that is find the right person, fall in love, Fix all your hopes and dreams and aspirations on that person. If failure occurs, repeat steps one, two, and three. Find another person. Fall in love again. Fix all your hopes and dreams on them. But that's not God's way. Here's God's way. Don't find the right person. Become the right person. Walk in love. Fix all your dreams and your aspirations on God. And then if failure occurs, repeat steps one, two, and three. Become 
the right person. Walk in love. Husbands, love your wives. You say, is this hard? Not really. Because every single time God gives us a command, he always, always gives us an example. And it's usually through himself. How are we supposed to love? Guys, we need to love our wives just like God loves us. Got it? Well, how does God love us? Well, Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is an unconditional love. Say that with me. Unconditional love. We never had to earn God's love. We couldn't earn God's love. You can't be good enough to get it. It is an unconditional love. No strings attached. God's love for us is not based on our performance, our obedience, our submission, while we're yet sinners. So it's an unconditional love. But it's also an unquestioned love. Do you know that verse? It's in the book of John, chapter 3, I think right around verse 16. Have you ever heard that one? Say it with me. For God... Excellent. I shared with the church last night when you're with teens, they put extra O's on so. He is so immature. You know, kids talk like that. For God so loved us. It's an unquestioned love. Guys, love your wife. And the problem is in counseling a lot of times we'll say, guys, will say things like, well, I, I, I just don't love her. You're commanded to love your wife. She's not a good wife. Then you're commanded to love your brethren. Is she a Christian? Well, she's not a good Christian. Well, then you're commanded to love your neighbor. Does she live near you? She's not even a good neighbor. Then you're commanded to love your enemy. You can't get away from it, okay? Love your wife. It is an uninterrupted love. Say that with me. Uninterrupted love. And I love the passage of Romans 8. I want to read it so I don't mess it up at all. I am persuaded, Paul said. I am convinced. I am sure of this. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. That neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other creature, get this, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing should ever separate us from our love for our wives, guys. So I got to ask a question. What interrupts our love for our wives? Could it be a football season? hunting season, a bigger paycheck. Could be parents. Could be in-laws. Could be a magazine. Could be a website. Could be another woman. I hope you're not flirting with an affair. Thinking that it will never happen to me. Okay? Honestly, our wives should have Total confidence, total confidence that there's absolutely nothing that could ever separate them from our love. Uninterrupted love. It's an unselfish love. As we read in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So the question is this. Is our wife here on earth to meet our needs or are we here on earth to meet her needs? Is she here to make us successful Or are we here to make her successful? What example did Christ give us? He came not to be ministered unto, but to serve all those he loved. It is an unending love. 
John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour was come, he should depart out of this world unto his Father, having loved his own which were in the world. Get this, he loved them unto the end. Where commitment reigns, divorce is never an option and totally should be erased from your vocabulary. Should. I have no idea anybody's position, anybody, where you guys are in life. But I'm saying if you are married, don't even hint, joke with that word. Especially you young couples. Hey, buddy, you do that against the divorce courts for us. And, and yeah, she can kind of catch your drift and know you're just exaggerating. But not that second grade little boy whose buddy at school's daddy said that. And he hasn't seen him for two years. Then it's not really that funny. Commitments are not based on convenience, they're not based on contentment, but they're built on intimacy, and that takes time. When I was a little kid, one of my favorite, favorite things at birthday and Christmas was to get a model. And on top of my dresser, I did. I had the school bus, S-C-O-O-L, with a lot of Hemi engines in it. And I had the Batmobile there and all these different ones. So when you finally get that model, oh, you just do. You take all the parts out. You take your pocket knife and kind of carve it out. Make sure each piece has no little bumps on it. And then you pull out the instructions. Glue part A to part B. Let dry for 15 minutes. I don't want to wait 15 minutes. It looks good after five. And you finish it together, next morning it's all sliding away. You know, a lot of times in our relationships, we never gave time for the glue to dry. We wanted to be one physically and maybe even financially, and we never became good friends. And I even know a lot of pastors who they do love their wives but they don't like them. And wives that don't like their husbands. But they have to kind of keep going because, quote unquote, not only is it their job, but they don't want to look bad and yet okay. And, and it's amazing the struggles even in a pastor's home. Husbands love your wives. Unconditional love, unquestioned love, uninterrupted love, unselfish love, and an unending love. You say, is that it? Well, that's how God loves us. But ladies, girls, I know that we men are kind of dull sometimes, okay? And we can hear something, and it doesn't always click. And so I'm going to break it down one more level for all of us. Husbands, love your wives. How? Number one, tell her. Tell her. I loved you. Tell her. She says, I love you. He says, yeah, me too. I love you. Back at you, babe, okay? Tell her you love her. Let your children hear you tell her that you love her. Seriously. You say, do real men talk like that? Jesus does. Every single time you open your Bible and it says, beloved, it means, hey, you loved of God. In fact, Pastor Ennis was sharing some Old Testament Hebrew with me with one of my favorite passages, and uh, there's another pastor that I picked up 
from the love story of, 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 of uh, Jacob and Rachel. And remember, he worked seven years for the love that he had for her. The Hebrew word, the transliteration is A-H-A-B-A. If you're married and your wife is here, look in her eyes right now. Look in her eyes and repeat after me. Uh, hubba. <laughs> so if you're in the middle of one of those discussions and you literally want to tear each other's hair out, you put your hands on each other's shoulders, you look each other in the eye and you go, uh, Hubba. Tell her that you love her. Number two, help her. Some kids said, uh, what's your dad do? He's a watchman. Oh, like a night watchman? No, just a watchman. Oh, he fixes watches? No, no, no. He watches TV, and he watches mom do the dishes, and he watches me mow the lawn. Help her. Get a honeydew list and start hacking away on it. Just the little things that she'd love to get done, okay? Now, I will say this. In all my study, I've only found one reference in the Bible regarding doing dishes. Since it's in Second uh, Kings twenty one thirteen, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem. You ready? As a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. That's in the Bible. You say I bought her a dishwasher. Doesn't that work? Okay. Maybe she just would maybe want you to spend some time right next to her. Okay. But there's another way to help our wives. And this is one that a lot of wives are crying for. And that's to help her spiritually. Guys, do you realize what our ultimate goal is as a husband or as a dad? It's to prepare our wife or prepare our kids for judgment. That's our ultimate responsibility. To let them know that the day will come that they will kneel before a holy God and they will be accountable to that God. That is our responsibility. We can't dictate what their response is to that. But we work all we can to help them in that way. And while you're helping prepare for judgment, guys, some of you are close to my age. I'm 65. And we had these dads that came out of Korea, World War II, and I mean, come on. You give them some stainless steel wire and duct tape, they could build a helicopter that could fly. These guys could do anything, right? But they weren't really big on knowing how to express their love. And if you did wash the car, you missed part of it. And if you mowed the lawn, the lines were crooked. It was like you could never quite please them. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's almost like you're living in this idea where there's a demand for perfection. If you remember how that feels, now you know a little bit about the demands that sometimes we preachers put on our ministry wives. That they feel like they have to be perfect. And we're always looking for perfection. They always have to look nice and sing and play the piano and run a ladies' meeting and be able to teach and preach and... We do. We sometimes put that kind of pressure on them. Instead of looking for perfection, maybe we should do what God does for us and look for direction, okay? So help her. Number three, share your life with her. Share your life with her. Your dreams, your goals, your fears, your joys. Does your wife know your biggest fear? She should. She's your prayer partner, okay? Does she know your greatest joy? 
Does she know this? When I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, you literally grabbed your gun and you could go 20 miles through woods and never see a sign, no hunting or no trespassing. Now today, we buy our half an acre and hope the deer run through it because we allow our wives to get close, but then we put up a no hunting, no fishing, no trespassing sign. Only so close. Instead of truly letting her know your heart and your feelings and what you're afraid of and telling her what's, what hurts in life. We're to be one, not two. Not just two lies under the same roof, sleeping in the same bed. And again, if we want our wives to be one with us financially, physically, we should be one with them emotionally and in our heart. Number four, praise her. Praise her. Refuse to compare her unfavorably with anyone, okay? Praise her. Walt Fremont, one of my heroes, he used to say you got to give three compliments a day. One in how she looks, one in how she cooks, and one in how she takes care of the house. You say, okay, Rand, you've never eaten at our house. In our home, it's, hey, honey, it's time to eat, get in the car. You know, that's kind of how it goes now. But you can be creative even in that. Sweetheart, did you make this with your own two hands? I have never, ever eaten anything like this in my life, you know? Or, oh, man, this is incredible, really. Uh, Hey, you want to go to Outback tomorrow? You know, whatever it might be. (laughs) Never, ever attack her character. Ever. Never attack her character, guys. When the Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, God means this. And the word corrupt means to putrefy or to rot. And when we say these little cutting words, what, what, look at this checkbook, come on, can't you do better? Just the little stuff. It does, it plants these little seeds, these little barbs in, in some hearts. It's, it's tough to deal with, okay? It's hard to forgive. And I know even in our marriages and ministry, sometimes we don't want to bring up the tough stuff. You know, she doesn't want to bring anything up to you guys because you have this incredible art of taking it and turning it so now it's once again her fault. And you don't want to bring anything up to her because she gets historical. I don't mean hysterical. I mean historical. I mean 25 years ago, blah, 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 and she dumps it out. Because we just, for whatever reason, don't deal with these issues like we should. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good to the use of edifying. And we forget the last phrase, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Remember, grace is unmerited, undeserved favor, right? Okay. Now, you can see, ladies, I'm on your side, but you guys can be pretty moody sometimes. You girls can. Come on. Some of you wear mood rings, sing the moody blues. Some of you are so moody of like honorary doctors from Moody Bible Institute, you know, and yeah, you become like these monsters every once in a while, ah, you know, and it's just tough sometimes. So what do you do, guys? You give grace. Unmerited, undeserved. You love her like God loves you because you don't deserve his love. 
Praise her. By the way, when we attack the character, the one we are responsible for, spiritually responsible for, who are we actually attacking? And again, I'm not being mean. I'm your friend, okay? But if a guy comes to me and says, oh, my wife, she's had this problem for 25 years, I'm saying, sorry, dude, that's your fault. That's your fault. You haven't lovingly done whatever it could, could to help her get over that, over that many years, okay? And finally, show her that you love her. If I stopped right now and walked around with this mic and handed it to some of you wives, and I asked some wives, what is the most important thing in your husband's life? What would she say? What would she say? You know what I hope she would say? Oh, Rand, the most important thing in my husband's life is his relationship with the Lord. I can't even remember a day that he doesn't get up early, make his coffee, and goes and opens the the Bible and spends time with his God. It is so important to him. And when he preaches, he's one of my favorite ones to listen to because I know his heart and I know how he's digging in. It means a lot to him. He's not just repeating the stuff he wrote down quickly on the night before. No, it's in his heart and in his life. But if she couldn't say your relationship to the Lord, what would she say? Your work? Your TV? Your media presence? What is the most important thing in your husband's life? Demonstrate to her that apart from your relationship with Jesus Christ, she has first place, okay? First place. This takes a lot of TLC, time, labor, and cash, okay? It does. Give her a lot of tenderness, respect, courtesy. And I usually step out a little bit out of line here, but guys, would you please help your wife with her chair? Could you please open the car door for her? I know, I know it takes an extra 20 seconds of life. But there's just something about going over and doing this. That, oh, he cares. And I, you know, you say, well, I push that key thing and it only, I push it and it only opens my door. Then hit it twice, okay? At least hit it twice. Get her a cup of coffee. Um. Uh, Find out when she's really down and say, "Hun, I'll go pick something up so you don't have to cook tonight. But don't try to appease her or your conscience by giving her money and things. She wants you. Okay? Bring back the days of chivalry. You treat her like a queen, she'll treat you like a king. Hold her hand. Give her an unsolicited kiss. Don't peck her on the cheek like some kind of hungry chicken, but I mean, kiss her, okay? I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) Husbands, seriously, love your wives because you've got kids in your church that have never seen a true, godly, loving husband. And you're probably the only class that they'll ever take in life to know how to do that. Yes, you, Pastor. We have different speakers come to our ministry at the Wilds. And I love the ones that talk to my wife. Because some of them don't. They're too busy, whatever. But when they step aside and say, hey, how are you doing? Yeah. 
How many kids you have? Got grandkids? Makes a difference, doesn't it, girls? Huh? You know what it's like to stand there next to all the preachers and you're thinking, I'm invisible. Yeah, that's our fault, guys. Yeah, let me, let me, hey, this is my wife, Amber, and Oh, and I, I have a wife, and she takes care of her mother. Her mother's 98, and she lives with us, has for years. And um, But she says, Rand, I want you to serve God. Go for it. When I need you, I'll make sure I let you know. I, I'm telling you, I couldn't do what I do and spend my life encouraging kids like I do without her. Husbands, love your wives. But I knew there'd be a bunch of wives here, so I didn't want to stop there. So he's thinking, okay, here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands, okay? It is a misunderstood principle because even the context of all that study is underneath us submitting ourselves to each other. And I personally believe that when a man knows how to submit himself to God in a proper way, his wife and kids lovingly and willingly will want to submit to his leadership. But that's not where we're going tonight. If you want, you can even close your Bible because I thought it'd be cool right here before tri-tip. And I'm the only thing between you and tri-tip. I want to tell you a love story, okay? Can we just dig into one of the coolest love stories in all the Bible? It's a love story of Jacob and Rachel. It's found in the end of Genesis or Genesis 29. Laban said to Jacob, because you're my brother, shouldst thou therefore serve me for nothing or not? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Now, Leah was tender-eyed or weak-eyed, maybe even cross-eyed. But Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Ahaba, Rachel. And said, I'll serve thee seven years for Rachel, younger daughter. And Laban says, better I give her to thee than I give her to another man. Abide with me. Verse 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed unto him but just a few days for the love that he had for her. He so loved this girl. He really, really did. Well, you know the story how that Laban kind of tricked him a number of times and stole from him and cheated him. And finally, he couldn't take it. So he just told his family, we're getting out of here, okay? Now, by the way, I'm going to back up a minute. I still don't got that one figured out about the Leah and the Rachel thing. <clears throat> I know it's not our world today, but he, he, he thought he married Rachel. I don't know if somebody kicked the candle over in the tent or what, but he woke up, married to Leah. And now he's got two wives, okay? And, uh, and then the kids started coming, and then Laban's cheating him, and he had to work another seven years, and... Finally, they took off. They waited till Laban went off to what they call shear sheep, and it was basically, it would take quite a bit of time, and it was actually a time of feasting and all. So they snuck away. When Laban came back, he found out that they were gone, and he immediately took after them. And one of the reasons, something was missing. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, the gods, the idols. And Rachel had taken them and hidden them underneath her kind of a saddle of her camel, and then pretended she was sick so they didn't bother her. Rachel stole the gods of her past. Because after 14 years, Rachel was discontent with Jehovah God. It wasn't good enough for her. She had to hold on 
to something that she worshipped in the past. Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And I feel for Leah, poor girl. I mean, come on, year after year after year and just never being loved. When Rachel saw she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled again. Rachel said, am I in God's stead who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? Now Leah, Jacob's first wife, bore six sons and a daughter, but yet she lived her entire life feeling unloved, rejected, unwanted. Seen in their jealous competition, even in the way they started naming their sons. Her first son, his name was what? Reuben. And Reuben means, see, a son. Today we say, it's a boy. That's what it means. I've given him a son. And our Bible says, the Lord has surely looked at my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. The second son is named Simeon. It means heard. And Leah could have thought, because the Lord has heard, I am unloved. He has given me another son. Levi means attached, verse 34. Maybe by this time my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Do you remember the name of his fourth son? Judah. And I don't know this for sure, but it's almost like Leah said, it doesn't matter what I do. He will never, ever love me. So I'm just going to praise Jehovah God. And it means praise. Now, meantime, while this was going on, of course, Rachel, she's got this discontented heart. And they had another strange custom, okay, that you could bring your servant girl and give her to your husband to have kids. And so she brings in Bilhah. She's driven by envy, and they accept this pagan custom rather than trusting a sovereign God. And then we get two boys. Dan means judge. Rachel said, God has judged my case. He has heard my voice and given me a son. And then Naphtali means wrestling. With great wrestling, I've wrestled with my sister. And indeed, I have prevailed. It's two to four. So Leah says, well, she can do that. I can do that too. And she brings in Zilpah. And now we got Gad, a troop, and then Asher. And then Leah comes back and has two more boys and a girl. Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. The score is nine to two. Finally, finally, God opened Rachel's womb, and she has a son, right? God remembered Rachel. God hearkened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bare a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name what? Joseph. You know what Joseph means? Add to me another. It's nine to three. It's not fair. You know, Rachel was beautiful, well-favored, rich, and extremely loved by her husband. But it wasn't enough for her. She lived her entire life with a discontented heart. The curse of discontent, ladies, it'll kill you. It really will. It begins by comparing you know the passage. They measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves are not wise. And isn't it easy to start comparing with other couples and other ministries and other pastors and look at 
their life and look at their family and look at the size of their church and look at their nice home and we start to compare. And once we begin to compare, the very natural next step is we begin to complain. I'll never enjoy that in my life. God must love them more than he loves me. How come they can have it and I can't? And it's so easy to look around and compare with those whose husbands go home at 4 o'clock and everything, quote-unquote, seems perfect and they have naturally obedient children and all this stuff. I read a book that, um, Brother Tim, maybe you, you might have went to high school with this guy. Jeremiah Burroughs is 1648. Um, um, He's one of our Puritan friends, and he wrote this book, 1645, excuse me, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I like reading some of these Puritan guys because you've got to read them three or four times just to be able to get a hold of what they're saying. He has the excuses of a discontented heart. I find my affliction is such that God withdraws himself from me in my affliction. That is what troubles me. And can anybody be quiet then? Can anybody be satisfied with such a condition? In other words, just because we do not see God's hand in a difficulty does not mean it's there. Just because we do not know what God is doing through that difficulty does not mean he is not in control. Burroughs says this, Oh, but it is very great. My affliction is exceeding great, says someone. And however you may say we must be contented, you may say so who do not feel such great afflictions. But if you felt my affliction, which I feel, you would think it hard to bear and be content. In other words, nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows but Jesus. However you may lessen my affliction, yet I am sure it is far greater than the affliction of others. Okay. Let's ask God to be fair. Let's ask God to take every burden and every heartache, every disappointment of the world and put it in one great big pile out here in your parking lot. And then let's ask God to get some angels to come down with some shovels and take one shovel at a time and give to every single one of us. That includes cancer, the death of a loved one, a child that's gone far, far from God. Takes heart attacks and disappointments and people hating you even though you love them. You gotta take it all. Okay. Maybe we be so quick to say that God's not fair. He says, Though I confess that my affliction is somewhat hard, and I feel some trouble within me, yet I thank God I do not break out in discontented ways to the dishonor of God. I keep it in, although I have much to do within my own heart. And ladies, it is not enough just for your tongue to be silent. Your heart needs to be silent. Because I tell you, you know the tension in a home, and kids know, if you still have kids in the home, that, whew, it's one of those days. It's going to be tough. Mom's in one of those moods takes more than just our tongues to be silent. Discontent, it compares. Discontent complains. Discontent starts to criticize. You start to look around and you start not liking certain individuals who have what maybe you would like. 
and you start attacking other ministries. You say, well, they probably do that because they do something wrong to get all those people. And all of a sudden, we start being very, very critical towards those that we are technically envious of. But after this discontent compares, complains, criticizes, you know what it continues to do? Discontent continues to crave. It never stops. So I got a question. Ladies, what is it in life that you really, really, really want? In what way do you feel that maybe God has been unfair to you? When will you be able to say a true heartfelt thank you, Lord, for everything you have rather than desiring something God did appease Rachel, didn't he? He gave her another son. And his name was? She never knew that. She called him Benomi, which means son of my sorrow, and she died. She was beautiful, she was rich, extremely loved, and she died as she lived with a discontented heart. It can crawl into her wives. Men, it can crawl into our lives too, couldn't it? Always comparing and looking around and wondering why God didn't bless us like he blessed somebody else. What is the cure of discontent? Did you know it's very simple? Knowing God well. Knowing God well. Understanding the promise of God's powerful provision. You know the passages from Philippians 4. Not that I speak in respect to want. I have learned in whatever state I am, therewith to be what? Content. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And God will supply everything I need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Believing that God has supplied everything I need for my present happiness. And believing that God has given me just enough. Proverbs 30, just enough. Not too much, where I'll have so much I won't even pray. Not too little, where I'm going to go and figure out how to do it myself. But just enough. Again, focusing on God's powerful provision, but also focusing on God's protective presence. Let your conversation, your life, be without covetousness, which is the enemy of contentment. And be content with such things as you have. And what is his answer then? I will give you a bigger church. I will give you a more loving husband. I will give you more obedient kids. I will give you an easier, more comfortable life. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God is more than enough. We all know that our security, truly our fulfillment should not come from our wives, men. And ladies, it doesn't come from your husband. It comes from God. Now you can thank God for such a wonderful, wonderful relationship by loving your wife, men, and ladies being content with a husband that God gave you. And maybe he can't hit a home run every time, okay? But I dare say he probably tries. But men, we need to 
man up and see where we're failing. I pray often, Lord, please help me to love Amber like you love me. And I do love her. But I get selfish and I get thinking more of the ministry and serving. And I need to learn to say no more. And I do. I ask God to help me with that because it's like I'm dumb. Okay? I'm dull. And I don't want to do that to my wife or to my Lord. My life has been given for teenagers. And many of the teens and college kids I talk to say they don't want to ever get married. When God tells us the greatest picture of the church in Christ is our marriages. And the reason they don't want to is they see very, very few marriages that they would want to have. So our prayer for all of us in our churches, in our homes, please, guys, work hard. Ask God for daily help to love your wife like God loves you. Then, ladies, just say thank you, Lord. Thank you for the husband you gave me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do. We thank you that you never stop loving us, never stop caring. And we thank you for that. Help us men to be loving. Help us to just simply take what we know that you have given to us and share it with our wives first, our family, and then, of course, the people you've called us to serve. Thank you, Lord, that you care so much for us. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Can we sing one of my favorite old songs?